people are really curious. People always ask me questions about it. And I'm the strange shark girl who knows a lot about shark sex. You're listening to Hope Act Thrive by Be The Future, an inspirational podcast for guardians of the next generation who want to nurture heroic leaders for environmental change. Just like you, we want to create a better, greener, fairer future for the kids in our life. Hi, I'm Sally Giblin, an environmentalist, writer, and parent, and co-host of this podcast, alongside the brilliant Helen Hill. Hi, I'm Helen, and I'm an educator, author, and designer. Hello, and welcome to the Hope Act Thrive podcast. Today's episode is with Adele Dutilwa, a marine biologist, fisheries scientist, and budding biomimicry designer. Through her master's research, she unexpectedly became an expert in sperm storage in females, sharks, and rays. She is undeniably passionate about the oceans, the interactions we humans have with the world around us, and the interconnections between the two. Adele is also a multimedia artist using her art to empower women and express her love and respect for the ocean and our planet. In this conversation, we'll be talking about marine science, biomimicry, and innovative solutions. So let's get into it. Welcome to podcast, Adele. It's nice to be here. It's lovely to have you here. So we originally met on the X Expedition voyage, um, where which researched into plastics in the ocean. So it's lovely to catch up with you again. Yeah, absolutely. It was so nice of you to think of me for this. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey into becoming a marine biologist? I'm so envious of this. It's something that I wanted to do as a child and I never followed that passion. So I, I love that you did. So why did you choose this area of discovery for your career? So I've got a bit of a story to this. It came to me as a bit of an epiphany. I was 16 and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grow up and was walking down the beach with my parents thinking about all of the possible things that I could do because I wanted to do science and I wanted to do something that helps the world but I also didn't want to be stuck in a lab with jam jar glasses by the time I was 30. So I was thinking and thinking and thinking and then walking down the beach all of a sudden it just hit me and that was it. That's what I wanted to be when I grew up was just a marine biologist. So I didn't really feel like I had a choice in the matter. It just, yeah, it just happened. I love that. That's brilliant, though, just to to know that. I, you know, I mean, I had a very squiggly career and it took me to 35 to find what I wanted to do. So that's absolutely brilliant. It's said that just 5% of the Earth's oceans have been explored and charted, which is a phenomenal statistic. But can you tell us why this is and why it's so important for us to discover more about the oceans? So the Earth's oceans are inherently difficult to see and go and find because a lot of it is just far too deep. And the deeper you go, the deep, like the higher the pressure is and things get crushed. So developing technologies like research submarines has been a huge turning point in that ability but they're expensive there aren't that many around and so it's just slow progress people may may have heard that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do 
about the oceans and I think that also goes for Mars at this point. But the oceans are the bloodline of the world, really. They cycle water, so then we have the water evaporates from them, so then it rains on land and that's part of the water cycle, so then you can drink your water. All of the creatures in the ocean, without them, life started in the ocean. So without any of that, we wouldn't be here talking about how we've ultimately not looked at any of it. So the importance of discovering more is, if for nothing else, discovering where life came from. That's really fascinating to understand more about, you know, why it's so important and uh, how much we've yet to discover. So I guess when you completed your master's a few years ago, you unexpectedly became an expert in sperm storage in female sharks and rays, and your research gained substantial media coverage. Can you talk us through why you focused on this and, and what your discovery was? So I focused on this um, by chance, really. Um, my supervisor for my master's research was both of us were intrigued at looking at the maturity and how female sharks mature and whether um, the way in which we assess how they mature. So by looking inside the, the females and looking at the size of the eggs and the size of the uterus and how developed they are, if there are any pups present, the way in which we do that and then that data is really important in us understanding how resilient these species are to fishing and the impacts of fishing because they're caught in quite large numbers um, by commercial fishers. And so the implications of getting it wrong could have some really severe detrimental effects of that. And we were, so I was looking at the, what we call the macroscopic side of things, which is the looking at the big parts. And in order to validate how mature the sharks were, we decided to have a look and see if they were storing sperm. So if they were storing sperm, they'd been sexually active and they had been mated. They may have not yet produced any pups, but they were actively mating which is a sign of maturity. And so that's where it kind of blossomed from, looking for sperm in the gland in which they are stored, which is called the overduical gland. So this particular gland produces the egg casing of um, some shark species that lay eggs, and it produces egg jelly, which pr protects the egg um, in the uterus. And that's where the sperm is stored. And it's quite a small structure and you have to take really thin slides, like cut really thin portions of them, put it under a slide, stain it, and you get a whole bunch of pink and purple and blue wiggles and blobs and really cool, beautiful, beautiful structures. And it's like searching for a needle in a haystack. The sperm are slightly darker blue and uh, the wiggly bits, but everything also just looks wiggly. So it was really difficult to find. And there was no guarantee um, that I would find any. So I spent hours um, traipsing through these really beautiful slides, um, 
hoping to find them. And then I did in three different species. And they were in species in which they hadn't been discovered before. So that was really cool. Well, it's just it's fascinating Adam, to to have accidentally fen, fell into this world of, of finding all that. And to be, I love the way you've described it because I actually understand it, and I'm not a scientist by any means of imagination. So, what what's next in terms of this research and the steps of where it's going? Is it carrying on? Is it complete now? My part of it is complete at the moment. So, right. um, I put a paper out in the. Deep Sea Research 2 journal that came out last year. But I think it's important to maintain this kind of blue sky random research, I suppose, where you get the random discoveries because it gives us a way better understanding about how the world works and uh, the assumptions that we make about everything. So if you look at a human, humans actually store sperm for between five to seven days. So sperm within a uterus can survive for that long. In some other species, so in some shark species, they can be stored for an estimated couple of years. So the need for knowing this kind of information gives us a good picture of the reproductive cycle of things of different species and especially when it comes to fish we catch them at a certain size which is indicative of their position in the reproductive cycle so the bigger they are we assume that they've already reproduced and so they are part of the reproductive population but there are others coming through from their genetic um, makeup so it's less limiting on the um, gene pool. But if we know that things store sperm, we can't be so sure that they have yet reproduced. And whether it's because they're far apart from one another or they don't encounter each other very often, which is one of the hypotheses for why these deep sea sharks and rays do it, or another hypothesis for these these species is that the mating event is for lack of a non-personified, non-human lens on it, considered to be traumatic um, because the males will grab the females with their teeth because, of course, they don't have hands. And it seems all very forceful and brutal from the human perspective. Um, so that also might be why. But I think it's important to know all of these things so we can know how our world works a little bit better. And it sparks curiosity, like even though it's a very weird place to end up being an expert in sperm storage, people are really curious. People always ask me questions about it. And I'm the strange shark girl who knows a lot about shark sex. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> uh, I must admit, I think went on the ex expedition voyage when you introduce yourself like that. I was just, I was just in awe. It was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> it makes people laugh, and it so does. it gets people 
interested in what what it is you're doing because they know you're not taking yourself too seriously. Yeah, and it's a great way of getting people interested in science actually to come in with this really unusual angle you know something that can almost be a bit taboo to talk about in in, you know particularly in the UK with adults and stuff you don't talk about this stuff so much and that's a brilliant way in I love it it's a great conversation starter at parties where I don't know anybody (laughs) I can tell you that much (laughs) I make friends right away (laughs) so Del what's the weirdest question you have ever got about this then Oh, that's a tricky one. Because it's this very niche science area, people are generally just really confused as to why I would why I'd go there. I think that's probably the 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 biggest question I get asked is just but why? Like why would you even look? <laughs> but I mean this this surely has impacts for research into things like endangered animals and species and things doesn't it i think it could yeah because like some turtles they store sperm but they also have a thing called cryptic choice so the female can mate with several males and then choose which cohort of sperm to produce her next batch of eggs with wow okay. how how does she do that <laughs> how? <laughs> yeah i i'm not entirely sure to be honest and i'm not sure we really know but no. it's, we found it through paternity testing fascinating that's, that's phenomenal that a body of any creature can do that and just reject what it wants Wow, okay. We're going down a whole different cavern here of like conversation. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. We can go to very dark places with this. <laughs> yeah. But it's fascinating, isn't it, though, how I think you can go into viewing the animal world by thinking about what we know about the human world and human reproduction and how things work, and then almost just assume that a lot of that must transpose to the, the animal world and the, and the sea world. But actually, you know, given how little we really do know about the oceans and, and life in there, it's really eye-opening to think just how differently things may work and just how many things out there may blow our minds. Mm. Yeah, there's actually a really good book that I read because so through my research, because I was looking at females, <clears throat> I realized how little research there is on females of any species, not just humans. And I read this book called Fallacy and um, with a PH and it's all about the history and what, what we know about penises. And it was an incredibly interesting and humorous read because the way that we humans view that particular appendage is a really closed-minded and single view of looking at the use of a, a body part. So penises come in so many different shapes and sizes and not all of them are used in the way that we imagine and know humans to use them as. So they could just be there as decoration, as weapons, as all sorts of different things. But we as humans have put our lens on it 
and think that, okay, well, this thing has an appendage that looks and is phallic, um, it must be a male and it must be used the way that we use ours. And so it completely shifts your perspective on how the animal kingdom actually works. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we could probably argue there's some humans to try and do that as well, but that's fantastic. That's, yeah. So you've worked in marine and fishery science for, is it around nine years now? And as part of that, you've experienced firsthand the effects of human impact on the oceans. So can you tell us some of the things you've seen as well and what some of the promising solutions might be to that? So being out at sea on a research fishing vessel is well for me it was a it was an incredible adventure but it was also really confronting because we fish the way that commercial fishers do so we trawl the bottom of the ocean to get our samples and yes it's at a smaller scale and all of the data is collected for the greater good of science and our understanding, but you do spend a month at sea killing things and everything and anything that comes up. The scale at which we were doing it, being at such a smaller scale than a commercial vessel, and we were getting the biggest bags we were getting were five tons, but I'd never seen five tons of fish before, and it's a lot. And if you think that commercial fishermen are fishing up upwards of 50 tons per net, and we were doing five tons maybe per day, it the scale of it was hugely, yeah, really confronting and made me question what the point of all of this was. But it also put me into like my survival brain mode which i thought was really interesting because i just got to i just turned off my emotions towards it which i think is how we've managed to get away with a lot of the destruction of our planet but we did pull up different bits of plastic habitats with all sorts of sea anemones attached and there was one fish that came up with a chicken bone from the hundred a thousand meters deep and <clears throat> so the impact of humanity is still seen when you pick up the bottom of the ocean and even though the scale at which the the statistics tell us it's at and the reality of it when you see it for yourself it's almost awe-inspiring, the fact that human presence is at the bottom of the Mariana Trench um, in terms of plastic bags and things that we don't even consider to be us anymore or useful to us. But I think it was quite beautiful to see these sea anemones using this giant sheet of plastic that we trawled up as their new home and so i think there's parts of what we are putting into the oceans that where the lines end up getting blurred between whether it's 
now considered to be trash or if it's now the habitat of a whole bunch of creatures that now live on it, which makes cleaning things up quite difficult. At what point do you say that a plastic bottle is shouldn't be in the sea because it's got creatures living on it if those creatures were to die if they didn't have it but I suppose this the promising solutions that come from that is the the need for rebuilding reefs and rebuilding those with human materials so then the creatures that we are having an impact on can thrive again. So reefs are really important for nurseries, for fish, which then can f- replenish the oceans. You raise a fascinating point, though, around, you know, this this line between whether plastics are absolutely seen as pollution in the ocean or they become adopted in certain ways into that ecosystem and I guess you know that you hear that statistic around by 2050 there'll be more plastic in the ocean than fish and so it is quite frightening to think about how humans are impacting that space and I guess what have you seen in terms of you know, solutions that are working to remove plastics from the oceans and stop things at the source. Have you seen anything that is really encouraging in terms of being able to really shift that tide? Well, stopping it at the source, so you've got a whole bunch of um, places that put nets at the end of their stormwater drains to try and catch plastic from the streets. You've got... um, I'm not sure what they're called, but there's those bucket things where the water gets filtered through and the plastic gets filtered out. But I think those solutions are really good, but we also can't forget that nature has a way of overcoming all of the stuff that we throw at it because it's been around for a really long time and it's designed a lot of solutions for problems that we don't even know we have. And if we look at the way that, say, places like Chernobyl have managed to have life be so plentiful again after a hugely impactful disaster, and environmental disaster, human disaster. Um, I think there's hope in looking at the powers that nature has. I think that that in itself should give people encouragement to try and find new solutions. So another example is at the, um, the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico all of a sudden they tested the sediments a few months after and they'd been testing sediments around that area before and they found a huge increase in marine fungi in the sediments and the ocean was literally cleaning itself. It was using its own creatures to clean. So why can't we harness that power? I think that is the only way we can do it. So this capacity 
of, of nature to really teach us about these solutions and teach us about better ways of doing things is really fascinating. And I know that you're a budding biomimicry designer. So maybe for those who aren't familiar with this whole field, can you talk us through what biomimicry is and maybe some examples that people might be familiar with about this world today? So biomimicry is a term that generally encompasses copying nature. So using nature as the inspiration for the design of a human problem. So this could be on any scale from the way that a glass is made that looks like a fish, for example. That would be making something look like something in nature. But the way in which um, biomimicry kind of takes it a bit further than that is that it's trying to learn how to be an earthling and using the principles of life as those building blocks for building our own sustainable future in which we can work in harmony with nature. So it's not going back to the dark ages and ending up with no houses, no cell phones, no nothing. It's about trying to adapt. What if we could have computers that were compostable? That That could be a thing, but you'd have to build the materials that would allow for that to happen. So one example of biomimicry that is used quite often is there's this Nigerian beetle um, that lives in the that lives in the desert and has no access to water. So in this particular desert, there's sea fogs that come in in the early morning. And this beetle has a carapace, so its shell is got all these little bumps on it. And this beetle stands up on its on its um, legs and lifts up its shell. And the sea fog hits because it's colder than the beetle itself. It it hits the the shell, and the water condenses, and the water rolls down the carapace into the beetle's mouth, and that's how it drinks. And there's a company that has developed a drink bottle that uses that same principle. So the inside of the bottle has the same kinds of ridges and bumps. You can leave your drink bottle outside overnight and it will have water in it in the morning. I love that. That is fascinating to understand. And just to, it it just opens up this whole other world, doesn't it, of things that us humans may not have thought of and just shows us how much we can learn from nature. Yeah, it almost seems daft that we haven't before now, doesn't it? It's like all this stuff has been there for us to learn from and actually we we haven't. So it's incredible, yeah. The thing that's that I find fascinating about that is that we've got a lot of that information out there. There's a lot of very strange science like storing sperm that is out there but doesn't get communicated well and then doesn't get utilized. And I suppose using biomimicry to solve problems is 
utilizing all of that knowledge that we already have, as well as asking questions that we may have never asked ourselves yet. This issue of communication is so important. And I think, you know, looking at climate change itself and looking at how many incredible climate scientists are out there who have been shouting from the rooftops for a very long time, but this this real lack of action has been happening. And, you know, looking to amazing communicators like Catherine Hayhoe, who are held up as leading voices in the movement of really getting people to understand about climate change and understand how crucial it is and what we can do and seeing that shift happening in the climate change space around that incredible need for very strong communication that really gets at the heart of getting people to make change and be involved. What do you think needs to happen in the world of biomimicry and marine biology and and science of the oceans to get people to really communicate this in an even better way that gets many more people on board and and makes things happen in an accelerated way? I think it's about making it fun and making people think. And I think science has a bit of an ego to it as a field and there's there's almost a an elitist feel to it that if you don't understand all of the jargon I'm throwing at you then well what's the point and science is often written for science for scientists by scientists to produce more science science isn't as I have discovered the hard way about finding solutions. Um, We spend a lot of time as scientists describing problems and describing hypotheses and theories, but we don't spend that much time thinking about the implications of that and the reality. And I think that's where people who have more of a social science or artists or people who are not necessarily science brains at heart have the power. And I think people like myself who are in a bit of a crossroads of being a scientist but also making art and also wanting to build those solutions, that's where the power is. And we need to, yeah, I think we just need to have fun and ask questions and get back in touch with the kid that we were that was fascinated at looking at a scab heel, you know, and asking those questions of how did that happen? What makes that work? And until we've, we all do that, I think it's really hard. Yeah, that's something, uh, yeah, yeah, nail on the head there because that is something we lose as adults, I think, that we worry about having fun with what we're doing. We we lose that ability to learn that way. Or, well, I mean, I still embrace it and and I I do get fascinated (laughs) with things like you mentioned, the way the body heals itself and stuff. But I suppose we've got to look to you know, there's these people out there that are communicating things well. You know, when you look at the Attenboroughs of the world and Brian Cox, I mean, the way he can explain space is phenomenal. And 
I, I totally fangirl him. I love him. Um, and I've been to see him a few times. And it amazes me that I understood 90% of it when at school I just didn't understand physics. And I think we've got to bring it down to that next level, haven't we? Because we've got these huge celebrities doing that stuff, and that's fantastic, and it's creating that general awareness. But there's this lower level where in education and in general television and books and things we need to make it more accessible for adults and not presume that they want to read that jargon and this I mean I could rant about this all day because it's a big thing that I do in my business where I really advocate for writing in plain English and getting rid of that jargon and make everything accessible to everyone but I think it all comes from when we're at school and if you think about the how boring being in science and maths was like there wasn't there was there was no there was no application shown. Nobody told you why you would need to know trigonometry until you become a builder and you build a house. Nobody tells you when you're going to need to know how the water cycle works or any of these of any of these parts. And I think the way that schooling is done is about regurgitating information as opposed to sparking a desire to know more. And I think we need to get people to get in touch with that side of things. It's not about the information that you know, it's about the information that you'd like to know. Yeah, I 100% agree. I almost wanted to shout, yes, 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 take the microphone. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> absolutely true. And it's funny because I was on a conference yesterday where we were talking about there needs to be a fundamental change in education. and actually the pandemic and the world situation right now has actually made people finally wake up to that that there is a different way of teaching and we need to embrace that and we need to empower the teachers to do that instead of tradition uh, teaching them in this very traditional like say parrot sense education where we tell you something you repeat it back great you get an a um so yeah that absolutely fundamentally needs to change and it's something that we want to bring in to build the future that you know learn through fun and with your family and let's have the adults learning at the same time as the kids I think that's really powerful yeah I totally agree and it gets you thinking and it sparks a discussion and it's no longer about whether you're 100% correct about something it's about being able to field those questions and go well I don't know I'll go find out this is that's a really interesting question I'd never thought of that and opening up that possibility of unknowns and that being an okay space to be in. And this all comes back to having a growth mindset, doesn't it? And I think, you know, I love that there's more education being led with that now and it's okay not to know and you try and you try and you try again and, you know, you don't know something yet. And I think if we are to really create a much better future and to be looking to all these different ways of doing things and to working with other peoples and all sorts of collaborations, there needs to be much more of that type of approach. And I guess something I'd love to to know from you, Adele, is what really gives you hope for the future? I think that the thing that gives me the most hope is that more people than we think care and people are just as confused and weird and uncertain and imperfect as one another and if we let 
each other be that way, then we'll all make small shifts to make our homes nicer uh, to the planet and to ourselves. We'll make our neighborhoods safer and more full of joy and encouragement and community. We'll talk to each other more. And I think it's really cool to dream, even though if the dreams seem impossible. I think that that's my own hope for the future is that I've got a hugely, I'm hugely passionate that humanity is smart and is capable and I think that this this current pandemic has shown us that we can do things together. The 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 fixing of the ozone hole is, demonstrates that. And I hope that this pandemic has shifted people's perspectives to the necessity of having each other. And that necessity is paramount to our survival yeah that's that's beautiful and i actually noted something down there's a bit of a quote that's i love that you said it's really cool to dream even if it seems impossible that's that applies to so many things our audience are the guardians of the next generation they're raising these kids who that you know they can be the heroic leaders of the next generation so what would you say to them what would you tell them First of all, have fun, go outside, look around. Dirt is not scary. And yeah, I think you just got to get stuck in. Get stuck in. And, and instead of getting frustrated at all the whys that you get asked, embrace them and think about what other questions, why or how should be asked though all of those questions we forget to ask them and we just assume that well i might not know that but somebody surely knows the answer to this question but what if nobody's asked it yet i think that that's that's the power is keep the curiosity alive in in your children and the people that are, are going to be our next generation. Adele, I love where you've taken this conversation and I love the fact that you're <laughs> essentially pointing out that we need to retain our curiosity, we need to retain the fun and we need to retain that love of just getting outdoors and enjoying things and doing things in play. And essentially everything points to getting more of that childlike sense of of wonder and fun and playfulness back and being more like yes. kids. And I think I know personally that when I spend time with my son and, and really try and be in the moment, in the present, you are much more like a kid and you can just be there having more of that playfulness and, and just engaging and, and finding the really simple things in life and that simple curiosity. So Thank you for that reminder. I think it's incredibly important and I have loved having this conversation. It's been fascinating. We've gone all over the <laughs> yeah. place. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, and I think the curiosity thing is super important for us adults because we, life, we love to take life so seriously yes. and life <laughs> is a struggle. And that's true. It's true for everything that lives on earth. It's true for probably everything in the universe. But 
life is also for living. Yeah. So why 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 not just enjoy it and question it and see what happens, right? Thanks so much for joining us this week. We really hope this episode inspired you. If it did, please review, subscribe, and share this episode with a curious friend. It makes it possible for us to keep having these conversations for you. Oh, and check out the show notes for more details on this episode and our guest. And come say hi to us on Instagram over at bethefuture.earth, where we share real tips for real parents and help you to turn eco-anxiety into playful action. Let's hope, act and thrive.